You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining me for tonight's teaching. This is part two of a teaching series that I've entitled One Nation Under God, question mark. And we are going to be doing uh, a continuing a deep dive into a fairly complicated topic about the relationship between church and state. In part one, I offered some thoughts on the question, is America a Christian nation? Tonight, we'll be focusing on the question, what is God's design for government? And I want to offer four points tonight to kind of look at the big picture, the meta narrative uh, for how human governments or spheres of authority act according to scripture, according to God's point of view, and try to orient us into thinking about governments in a distinctly Christian way. Uh, My hope (laughs) is that you will find this approach to be a helpful way of starting to organize your thoughts and to possibly uh, begin to help you think through questions when it's appropriate for Christians to resist government overreach and that sort of a thing. And this will not be an exhaustively complete presentation. Again, I am just doing a survey and trying to build out the framework for you. In the part three of this series, we will begin to apply some of these things to our country and things that we're going through and voting questions and issue questions. So that will be for next week. So with all of that said, let's get into it here. We are going to go through a four-step kind of process, four points tonight to help us understand God's design for government. So our first point is going to be that the most foundational thing we must understand is that all authority belongs to God. That is going to be our operating assumption for everything we are going to do tonight. God's design for governance begins with himself. The foundation of God's design is that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to God. God created the universe and he has complete authority over all of it. He, we see in Genesis 1-1, authority authoritatively spoke into the world, into existence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We'll go right to Hebrews chapter one, uh, where it is also a wonderful creation passage where it describes Jesus um, in that in long ago, in past, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things. In other words, he is over all things through whom he also created the world. And he is ruling and reigning now. So this is our foundational assumption of God's plan for governance is that all power and authority come from him. And the opposite would also be true, that there is no power or authority that is legitimate power and authority apart from God. All true authority is delegated or derived authority on behalf of the creator who authorized it. God delegates particular authority to particular people in order to rule and reign on his behalf. And we saw this passage last week from Uh, the Gospel of John, where Jesus reminds Pilate of this reality right before he goes to the cross. Jesus says in verse 11, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from above. So this is the foundational assumption of our worldview when it comes to governance. And this is why Christians believe that it is God who causes nations to rise and fall. It may look on the surface in the physical, in the natural realm, that Babylon conquered Judah. But we know the real story from God's perspective. It was God 
who delivered Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And it was God who brought calamity to the nation of Edom because of their gross practices of torture, as it talks about in Amos chapter one. And if God wants to bring judgment against America because of our country's laws that normalize gay marriage, that allow us to murder our babies on demand, or because we engage in inequitable prison sentencing practices, God has the right to do that because all of these things clearly violate God's standards of justice. So this is our first and our foundational principle that all authority belongs to God and he delegates authority to humans. Humans don't possess their own authority. They only possess delegated authority. I think these version, these verses from Colossians 1 are a great summary of the whole matter. We're going to start here at verse 15. He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him, all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things and in all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. So he's not just the savior of the church. He's also the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. In other words, the first to rise from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Okay, so with that idea firmly in place in our minds that God reigns over all, let's now begin to walk through the human levels of governance. And this brings us to our second major point, that God has appointed different spheres of society, each with its own distinct realm of authority and responsibilities. So again, power and authority have been delegated by God to various spheres of life. And each of these spheres has its own distinct God-given responsibility. So I'm going to, Bob made me this really cool graphic. Um, just to summarize, we're going to keep going through this tonight. So in the Christian worldview, we would say that Christ reigns over all things. All authority belongs to him. But then he dispenses or um, delegates that authority to us. And then we participate in these various spheres. And we're going to unwrap each of these spheres, except for the work sphere. We're not going to, we're only going to lightly touch on that, but we're going to unwrap these different spheres and kind of unwrap this graphic as we go. Um, each sphere stands equal to the other spheres in terms of its importance. There's no one sphere of life or society that is more important than another. And when they're all added together, they encompass the created order, which has been designed and governed by God and is under his ultimate authority. So human governance then falls under the umbrella in theology of what we call common grace. And this is a type of grace that God extends to every human in all times and all places. So if you want to learn more about the concepts that I'm talking about tonight, if you were to go look that up in a systematic theology text and you look at the table of contents, you want to, a good place to start would be looking for the entry on common grace. Um, and so common grace says that even if we don't know Christ as our personal savior, um, we are still under his authority and we still participate in these human spheres or structures, and we can uh, still follow his design, and we are expected to follow his commands, his laws to some degree. We talked last week about the Noahic covenant and how that was a covenant for the Gentiles, and that was a covenant that God made with all humans. So there are um, moral standards that God expects, even if you don't know him as a personal savior, we still can follow his design for living our lives to some degree, and we can reach a measure of success 
It says in scripture that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Humans have the opportunity to live, to breathe, to make a living, to build a family, to pursue a level of earthly happiness. This is what we call in theology, common grace. And it generally goes better for people when they follow God's basic principles for life. Again, even if they don't know Jesus as their savior. For example, you don't have to be a Christian to follow the biblical wisdom of how to handle money. There are all kinds of secular voices out there who will tell you that the wise way to live is to invest for the future, stay out of debt, and that it's noble to use a portion of your money to help others. Uh, the reasons that these principles work so well is because they are part of the way I think that God has set up the universe to work. So if we just read God's commands about money in Deuteronomy or in the book of Proverbs, this is God's common grace. But these principles are available for anyone to follow on some level. So when we turn to the realm of governance, we can participate in these different spheres of governance that we were showing earlier on the screen there, we can receive a measure of God's blessings through common grace, even if we don't know Jesus as our savior. And I'm going to revisit this principle a couple more times as we continue through the teaching. And I think um, as we continue to unfold this, it'll become more clear. So for now, let's get into some of these spheres of governance and with some concrete examples from scripture. Now, the most foundational level of human governance is what I'm calling self-governance. We see on our, our um, little graphic there, it was the individual. Um, and that's not to say the individual isn't connected to anybody else. It's a graphic. There's limits to what the graphic can do. Okay, so don't be over literal with the graphic. I'm not saying that the only person who exists is the individual. We're going to talk more about that. But this is just for illustrative purposes. So the desire and the ability to willingly submit ourselves to God-given authority without being forced, coerced, or constantly reminded to do so is a fundamental assumption that is latent in God's plan and his design for governance. God wants people to obey him as an extension of their true heart's desire to love God and love their neighbor. He, he wants his people to be a people who say, I love your law because it is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Okay. So the principle of self-governance was revealed in Eden. When God created Adam in the garden of Eden, God's design was that Adam would be self-governed in obedience to God's commands. We read this in Genesis chapter two. We read how God gave him the law by which there was an expectation he would obey. And tonight I picked a lot of scriptures from the NRSB in honor of my friend Susanna, who's watching the live stream. I think that might be one of her more favorite Bible translations. It's a good translation. So I, I picked that one for many of the scriptures tonight. It says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to till it and to keep it. He put him there to work the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's a command and there's a kind of a promise, if you will. The promise is a curse of what will happen if you disobey. And so the command is, you shall not eat of this tree. But the blessing is you can eat from every other tree, okay? So this is the, the first command. So once Adam had received this command, he had the choice whether to submit to God and obey or not. And God didn't set up guards around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to keep Adam away. He simply expected Adam to tell himself what to do. Self-governance is the primary means by which humans were created to be governed. This is creation design, okay, before the fall. 
God wants us to obey his laws, his commands, simply because we trust him. We're dependent on him as the creatures and him being the creator. We are submitting ourselves to his reign in our lives and over creation. Now, the obvious problem, however, is that Adam disobeyed God. And we, you and I, are Adam's children. So after the fall, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And a guard, armed with flaming swords, they were put at the entrance of the garden. So since Adam could not govern himself inwardly, he could no longer be trusted to obey God's commands and submit to his authority. So now, after the fall, evil had to be externally restrained. And we see this principle at work in the history of the Israelite people, which we're going to use as kind of a a microcosm here, a, a test case. So God's desire was to put his people in the promised land as a self-governing people. They didn't, he didn't set it up to have a king or a centralized government to rule over them. All they had to do was obey the law of God. Now they were sinners. They were on the other side of the fall, but that was still God's hope and expectation was that they would be self-governing. There was no government in place to force a rich landowner to feed the poor. God simply told individuals how to conduct themselves so the poor would be taken care of. And fathers were expected to teach these principles to their children. And all the Israelites had to do was put into practice what God's law told them to do. And then they would know how to love their neighbor. However, like Adam, the people of Israel failed to exercise self-government government. So when they turned their backs on gods, on God, they started worshiping false gods. They didn't follow his laws in how to treat others. So instead of loving their neighbor, they exploited each other through things like theft and murder and other sins. So God sent judgment in the form of other nations to oppress them and rule over them. Then the people cried out to God for mercy and God sent judges to deliver the people from their enemies and call them to return to the worship of the one true God. The people would then repent and turn back to God until the judge died. And then the whole cycle would start over again. So we have this little summary in uh, the book of Judges of this dynamic. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They worshiped the Baals. In other words, they worshiped false gods. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors who had brought them out of Egypt. Skipping down to verse 13, they abandoned the Lord. They worshiped Baal. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over. So notice the the, the authority comes from God. He gave them over to plunderers. They plundered them and sold them into the power of their enemies all around so they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to bring misfortune. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the power of those who plundered them. But they didn't listen to the judges. They still lusted after other gods and bowed down to them. And um, eventually it says the Lord will be moved to pity by their groaning um, because of those who persecuted and oppressed them. When the, but when the judge would die, they would relapse and behave worse than their ancestors, following other gods and worshiping them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So you notice this is a heart posture. They have stubborn ways. They didn't govern themselves. And so they would get oppressed by other people. The judges would come along, try to pull them back to God's ideal for them. And it would work for a while. And judges are not like kings. Judges weren't making a bunch of rules. Judges were just kind of um, a precursor to to kind of prophetic um, and acting as very informal leaders, but they, they were not setting up centralized governments and ruling over the people like a king. So what was the sin of the people? I think uh, Judges chapter 21 gives us a nice little summary here. 
In those days, there was no king in Israel and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. So this is uh, a very key insight into the situation. There was no king telling them what to do. They were self-governing. But what, how were they self-governing? They were doing what was right in their own eyes. They were not paying attention to God's laws. They were not allowing their souls to be shaped by God's word and knowing how to love their neighbor. As the period of the judges drew to an end, the Israelites asked to be like every other nation. They wanted a king. And we read 1 Samuel chapter 8 last week in part one of this series. And effectively, the Israelites were asking to be slaves. Um, remember this section from 1 Samuel chapter 8, where they were, he, he makes all of these predictions of what's going to happen once they have a king. Their, their, their land's going to be taken away. Their children will be taken away. They're going to be conscripted to the, the service of the king. They're, it's going to be very hard to build wealth. These are the consequences that they would face because they didn't want to govern themselves. And this is very important passage because this is the turning point in Israel's story where they go from, from, you know, I'm refusing to be self-governed. I'm going to be, I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. And then they are basically asking to be functional slaves to a king. And they want someone else to tell them what to do. And this is the dynamic that then is lived out throughout Israel's history for the next several hundred years. So instead of telling them what to, instead of telling themselves what to do and loving their neighbor as being a natural extension of their will, which is what God wants us to do. It was now they were, they exchanged that for slavery to a king. So doing that, which is right in our own eyes is not self-government. Okay. Self-government is in, in God's program. Remember, we're looking at things from God's point of view is all and, and always has been hitched to submitting to the word of God. It is willing obedience to God's principles then make us self-governed according to God's design. God's design is not about having a king rule over us and tell us how to order aspects of our lives that God wants to be in charge of. <laughs> God wants us to govern ourselves and to love our neighbor and to love him um, in the way that he designed us to be. So let's revisit a concept really quick here about common grace for a minute. So, any person can choose to abide by commandments uh, five to 10 of the 10 commandments. These are the laws that tell us how to love our neighbor. And even most Christians have an intuition that, that honoring father and mother is right. It's a right thing to do. It's good to honor your parents. As long as I'm not talking about sociopaths here. I mean, even when I was a volunteer chaplain in juvenile hall, like the universal prayer request that I encountered of people when I was uh, working in juvenile hall is when we had a prayer time is they wanted us to all pray for their mothers, <laughs> that they all felt such remorse for letting their mothers down. I think that even, you know, non-Christians have a, a concept most of the time, they haven't completely seared their conscience that honoring father and mother is the right thing to do. Most people believe that staying faithful to your spouse will bring more stability to your family than if you're a habitual cheater. Um, most people believe that stealing and murder are wrong and so on. So any person can engage in a level of self-government according to God's laws in these basic ways. And this is what we call God's common grace to all men or all humans. Life will go better for you if you follow God's design. Now, it's also true that a fallen, sinful human is going to be significantly impeded from obeying God's design um, apart from the saving grace of God. So in our fallen state, we are more likely to break 
God's commands and to engage in theft and lying and greed and fits of rage and coveting. Paul describes all of these behaviors in, um, let's see, I think I have Titus here as, as an example uh, to describe, you know, what we once were. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to our passions. Um, we engaged in malice and envy and hated each other. And, and this is the life apart from God. So to some degree, we can obey some things. We have a sense of that, but we know that deep down we're sinners. And so the first and most fundamental reformation that must occur before there can be true freedom that, that breaks out in a society as a whole is the reformation or the regeneration of the individual human heart. And this is what we call in scripture, saving grace. Romans six is an important passage. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin for whoever died is freed from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again and death no longer has dominion over him. So the old man is crucified with Jesus raised to new life. The spirit of the resurrected Messiah takes up residence in me as a believer so this is what I call what we call in theology saving grace. As the Holy Spirit gradually transforms the human heart through the cultivation of the fruit of the spirit of self-control, the ability to engage in more and more complex forms of self-government also grows because our heart is changed and we more genuinely want to obey God's law. It's not just an external thing that that kind of forces us to conform. Now our hearts are changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And, and we want to obey um, God's commands in a more personal way. So this is the idea of self-governance. And this is the foundation of God's governing ideal, his program, his design of how he's designed us to live. Okay, let's flash the um, the big picture up here really quick again of where we're at. So Christ reigns over all things. We covered that. Now we've covered that self-governance or the individual is at the foundation. And now we're going to work our way through these other spheres that God has set up. All right, let's move to the second realm of governance, and that is the family. Let's go to... Genesis chapter two for a minute. Uh, this is the foundation of society. Um, God puts the woman to sleep and then he makes her. And then he, he makes this proclamation once she wakes up. And therefore, therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. This is the foundation of society. You take two individuals who then are going to participate with each other to create the family. And God sets up the family. He designs the family. What I want you to understand is that family is part of the created order. It's not a result of the fall. It's not a curse. It's nothing like that. This is God's design that he set up from the beginning. So I don't want to, again, you know, when we look at the little um, chart that, that Bob made for me, I don't want you to overinterpret it and say like, well, Chris is just only talking about the individuals. It's just that the individual is how we participate in each of these spheres. So I participate and my husband participates in our family and now our children participate in our family. So we are both an individual and a corporate body in the family, but we all have decisions to make. Anyone who's been divorced knows that we all have decisions to make. And anyone who stays married knows that we all have decisions to make. Um, the individual is very important. So God has defined the family as a covenantal commitment of one man and one woman to each other and to their offspring. Um, the family is not instituted by the state, nor does the state have the right or the authority to redefine the family. 
God has appointed the family. He has created the family. He has defined the family. Okay. So we must understand that this is how God set up the world from the beginning. God has appointed the family to care for the family members, the health and the welfare of those in the family. Paul says that a husband must love his wife. Paul says that a husband must love his wife like Christ loves the church and nourish and cherish her as he does his own body. The words nourish and cherish literally mean promote health and keep warm. You know, those would be some definitions. Like Paul is basically saying that this is how the family has been set up by God to work, that people take care of each other. He also insists that the first line of defense for caring for widows and orphans is the family. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, whoever does not provide for relatives and especially for family members has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. (laughs) So um, a failure to care for family members in need is to basically, Paul says, is act like a non-Christian. Um, if we're going to act in a distinctly Christian way, then we will care for those in our family. Um, the scripture doesn't say that the government is in charge of caring for the people in my family. That's not the government's sphere of responsibility. That's our responsibility as the family and among God's people. Um, caring for the widows and orphans. Um, And the vulnerability of the widow is that if she didn't have a husband, she doesn't have a way to make a living. That's why widows, it is especially important to understand why they were vulnerable. And so does the responsibility of the family members to help them out. But when that apparatus fails, like let's say the family members are struggling and, and they can't um, you know, they're also poor Um, When that apparatus needs some support, then the church is supposed to step in. And so that there is an understanding of different roles and responsibility in this sphere. But again, it's not an isolated thing, but God says, okay, this is my deal. This is how I want things to work. Families take care of each other. But when there's extra needs, um, the church should be there to help out. The Bible also says that instruction of, of is the parents' job to instruct and educate their children and oversee their moral development. We see this throughout scripture. We're just going to look at one key passage here from Deuteronomy chapter six. Um, it says that um, recite these words, these commands to your children, talk about them when you're at home and when you're away. When you lie down, when you rise, I like to say while you're driving in your van, while you're while you're walking around your neighborhood, you are instructing your children in the Christian worldview. So this is the job of the parents. Now, when we say that parents are responsible for their child's education, it doesn't mean that they have to do all of the teaching themselves, but they are certainly responsible for making sure that their children are being primarily being properly taught in the faith. And so it, they can't just hand over that responsibility to someone else. So even if they're getting help from tutors or, or collaborating with other families, ultimately those parents are responsible to make sure that the children are getting proper instruction. And this includes moral instruction and instruction in the faith. Um, parents, Part of moral instruction includes, from a scriptural standpoint, teaching children about the value of hard work, the wisdom of stewardship, money management, staying out of debt, knowing what dangers to avoid, knowing what kind of people to date and not to date, what kind of friends to have or not have. Parents must teach their children how to do all of these things by setting that that moral example for themselves and displaying for their children in real life, tangible ways that we make God's reign, his authority over our family known. Uh, I think money is a very tangible way of doing that, of making God's reign known over your family. 
So the underlying assumption everywhere in scripture is that parents are responsible before God to raise their children according to God's wisdom. And God grants them the authority. He delegates that authority for this responsibility. The family was established by God before the fall as being a man and a woman with the children, go be fruitful and multiply. And the parents are directly responsible to God. The sphere, if we want to call it that, the sphere of responsibility of the home or the family does not require the government's permission or legislation, but it does expect the government's recognition of its responsibility. Government has no legitimacy to establish house rules for a family. Okay, so we can, again, recognize that the family is part of God's common grace, A father can teach his children the value of saving, hard work, how to follow the golden rule without being a Christian. But we can also see how vitally important it is that personal regeneration happens. Parents will be limited in their ability to raise children according to God's standards, apart from a work of the Holy Spirit in their lives to engage in repentance and forgiveness and grace and care for one another as a family. A family unit apart from true regeneration of the parents, the the children are going to struggle to realize the fullness of God's vision for the family. Okay, so that's our kind of our first two um, spheres under the reign of Christ is one is the self-governance. And then we also looked at the family. All right, let's move into a third area of governance or sphere of responsibility. We can look at our chart again. Um, We've talked about family. Now we're going to talk about the church. The church is sovereign over certain areas and has its own jurisdiction. So when you think about these jurisdictions, you might think about um, just different areas of responsibility. So the church is over things like preaching the gospel calling sinners to repent from their sins, gathering for corporate worship, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs together, baptizing new converts, administering the Lord's Supper, laying hands on the sick, laying hands on people to be ordained as ministers, uh, engaging in the steps of church discipline, even engaging in excommunication, which is fencing the Lord's Supper, not allowing them to participate in communion, So the local church is governed by qualified elders, okay? So these are the activities, the sphere of responsibility of the church. These are the things that God has put in the church's hands. And the people that he has put to govern the church are qualified elders. So this is just one scripture we could point to um, is 1 Timothy chapter 3, where we read about some qualifications of deacons and elders and about them being able to manage their households and and being men of of strong standing. So these, if you're going to manage the household of God, you you have to know how to manage your family. So do you see how that works? It's interconnected there. Um, So we're going to just kind of leave the church there right now. And we're going to hurry along and cover the fourth sphere of responsibility that God has delegated very special powers to the state. Okay, so scripture again places all authority under Christ. And this includes the civil government. Romans chapter 13 is a, is a passage that has been quoted a lot since the pandemic that we should obey the government, obey the government, obey the government. And uh, Romans 13 is, if you want to look that up, you can look in, Uh, The first seven verses, it says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. So notice, even the government is under the authority of God. All those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Um, I want to draw your attention to verse four. The government is God's servant for your good. The Greek word there for servant is deacon. The government is God's deacon. It is his servant and it is 
the one who bears the sword. If you do wrong, you should be afraid for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the deacon. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. So the role of the government is for primarily for the safety and security of society. Um, we see a similar thing in Psalm 72. I'm not going to read that, but if you want to read through Psalm 72, it's kind of another great passage uh, about the government and authority in, from God's point of view. So what we have to know here is the government does not create rights. The government does not create rights, but it does have a God-given responsibility to maintain the harmony and order of society by protecting the innocent and punishing the guilty. And some of those matters would include criminal law, national defense, and maintaining a fair and impartial justice system so that when abuse takes place in the other spheres that we talked about earlier, so when abuse takes place in the home or when a pastor steals from his church or when a citizen murders another citizen, the civil magistrate, the state is authorized by God to force those people to answer for their actions. This is why the symbol for justice is we talked last week about why justice has a blindfold on or why she's blind. Okay. But in, in this sense, um, the second half of justice is that she wields the sword. And why is that? It's straight out of the Bible because she is God's deacon. She is God's minister or servant. So she's blind. She's weighing the scales equally. That's also a biblical idea. But the state acts as God's deacon to wield the sword on his behalf. So when the state wields the sword, the state is supposed to be punishing the guilty on God's behalf. It's like a human precursor to potential judgment that's going to come in the eternal state if that person doesn't um, come into saving grace. Okay, so the court system is part of God's common grace, ideally, okay? The state becomes sort of a, a last line of defense to protect those who have been failed by other institutions. So um, if, if the father in the home isn't properly protecting the children or the wife, the elders aren't properly protecting the church, then protection goes to the state and there will be repercussions. And, and I'm speaking very idealistically right now. So, so far, I've simply tried to sketch out the broad parameters, very broad strokes for God's design for human governance. And we could certainly talk about other spheres such as work, which I have on, on this graphic. We could talk about the authority of bosses over their uh, people. That would all, I've talked about that in other videos, so I'm not going to cover that. But for the sake of time, I'm trying to keep this simple and just give you the big picture here. Now, each of these spheres have been established by God with unique responsibilities and activities. Each sphere is equally important and stands before God, before the presence of God, under his authority and for his glory. Okay, so now let's move to our third point, And that is that God limits the power of each sphere. Each sphere must recognize the entrusted authority and responsibility of the other spheres. Each sphere is to be respected by the other authorities in the other spheres. And a measure of that respect involves not usurping those other responsibilities, not overstepping the legitimate God-defined boundaries. So we need to recognize that these spheres are sometimes interrelated. No person is an island, okay? So... This, this graphic, it, it's not perfect, but I'm just trying to illustrate um, some key points here. You might say that people wear different hats at different times. For example, we follow the rules in the home uh, and we follow different rules. We go to the workplace, different rules at church, different rules at the state, because they all have different governing authorities. And in all of these situations, different authorities rule over us. And the father, the home can properly... In the home, the father can properly tell the son, take out the trash or apologize to your mother without overstepping any boundaries. 
However, what if the father works for the son? What if the, the son owns a business and the father works for them? Then at work, the roles are sort of reversed. The son becomes the authority over the father and can tell the father to assign the tasks of, of what to do. And this can lead to tension. <laughs> but if we respect the spheres properly, it helps us know our roles and responsibilities. So we should also make the point that this model does not mean blind, unconditional obedience to those in authority. Just because someone has the authority um, in this in its limited sphere, our obedience is also limited within the proper jurisdiction. So it, in our effort to obey those in authority over us, we don't ever want to disobey Christ. So if the state tries to forbid what God commands or commands what God forbids, like in the story of Daniel, um, the state has moved beyond its sphere of authority. And consequently, those who obey God must resist. If the state becomes a terror to those who do good and rewards those who do evil, it is a flagrant violation of God's command and ordinance. And Christians at that point have a duty to resist an authority because that authority has ceased to be God's deacon. So all this quoting of, of Romans 13 must be balanced with, well, what is its actual delegated authority? And um, so it's a little bit more nuanced than just telling people Romans 13, Romans 13 over and over again. So let me illustrate this uh, very important point with a series of practical examples. Uh, let's say that the state begins to interfere with doctrinal issues in the church. This was a big problem uh, during the bloodier parts of the Reformation. The state used the sword to enforce church doctrine, which would be an abuse of power because those spheres would be overlapping in inappropriate ways. That would be a violation of those sphere responsibility. Um, we don't need to obey the state when they pass mandates that tell us that we must have our children do things that violate our religion. Okay. That we, even that we must turn over our children to state school system. Um, God did not give the state jurisdiction over the education of my children. That's an authority God gave to me and my husband as the parents. So technically in our system, in our country, it's the right way. It's, it's state schools are voluntary, but I also can keep my kids at home. At the end of the day, I, as a parent, tell my kid how we are going to educate them. Okay. That is my God given authority. Neither do Christians uh, have to obey the state when they tell us that we can't preach certain doctrines because they have declared parts of the Bible to be hate speech. We can look at Romans 13 and say, now the state is telling me, is forbidding me to do something that God commands so I can resist the state. The government has no say about how Christians congregate together for worship or to preach the gospel. This is why Christians in China and North Korea meet together in spite of the fact that their state tells them they can't do that. Um, they recognize that those are commands that God has given them to do and that God has appointed the church to preach the gospel and to gather for worship. The state doesn't have the right to tell them not to gather. So they recognize that the state is reaching beyond its God-ordained realm of authority. So here's an unpopular take. <laughs> um, I think a case could be made that when the our government grants a, a, a nonprofit status to churches and ministries, um, this is actually overlapping these two spheres in an inappropriate way. Um, and it actually puts Christian ministries and churches in jeopardy because by accepting this perk of the nonprofit status, being able to get a tax deduction, churches are actually putting themselves under the authority of the state. And if the state gives rights, then they can also take them away at any time or change the terms and conditions. And the state sets up regulations that the church must then obey 
in order to keep that nonprofit status. So this may be subtle. Um, some of these influences may be subtle in the beginning, but the influence can still be there and still felt. And there are certain things that can and cannot be said from the pulpit in order to keep and maintain your nonprofit status. So finally, uh, churches and families who try to keep a child abuse a secret or call it an internal matter violate their sphere of authority. Um, such acts ought to be reported to the state because God has appointed the state with the task of protecting the innocent and punishing the guilty. So what happens when one sphere tries to overstep its realm of authority? Well, then hard decisions have to be made, which leads us to our fourth point. But um, OK, so let's go back to our illustration for a moment. And um, pop that up on the screen. Thank you, Bob. God is so sovereign over all things. Every inch of our existence is under his authority, whether we give him glory or not, whether we know him as savior or not, we are all created beings. And so therefore we are under his authority. God designed the world to be governed by individuals governing themselves, participating in families. Families are part of the, the created order and we have churches being established as part of the new covenant, as well as human governance, governments. And again, we could mention other spheres of responsibility, such as work. Um, but these are kind of the major ones that I think are helpful in, in our teaching. Now, all humans can operate within these spheres and achieve a level of, of life success when they are living according to God's design. A non-Christian can, can live by the principles of wisdom in, in the Bible and the Ten Commandments or the book of Proverbs, and life will probably go better for them. And this is, again, an idea we call common grace. Now, the Christian who walks in saving grace under the power of the Holy Spirit, we become more and more conformed to the image of Christ for obedience to God's commands through the transforming power of our, uh, the inward power of the Holy Spirit on our hearts, we will increase our ability to govern ourselves according to God's original design for Adam and Eve in the garden. Unfortunately, we are living in a cultural moment that seems to be shifting further and further away from the principles of self-governance and under the authority of God's laws. We live in a world that is much more like this second illustration that I'm going to have Bob put up here. And that is that we have put the state in charge of us similar to what happened in first Samuel chapter eight, where the people wanted a King and they gave up many of their freedoms and they put the King in charge. We have put the state in charge of responsibilities that don't belong to them. And we have all these spheres crashing into each other. Okay. We have put the state in the position of God. And now the state delegates what goes where, who's in charge of what, who has authority and who doesn't. And we allow the government to tell us how to educate our children. Some governments are even removing children from their parents because parents don't want their children to, they don't want eight-year-olds to take um, hormone pills to change genders. Yeah. This is now seen as an issue of child abuse and child endangerment. The government tells churches whether they can sing or meet or preach the gospel or what they can say in the pulpit. These are all actions that are commanded by God. We have submitted many of our responsibilities to regulate ourselves in exchange for government assurances for money and health and safety. There's a lot of things right now in our culture flying under the banner of health and safety. And instead of focusing on me making choices for myself and for my family, the government, I've, I've given away that power to the government. And I'm have there's a lot of things happening right now under the banner of health and safety and more when with it, more and more regulation. And we seem to be going along with it in, in large measure as a culture. And this mindset puts the Christian in an adversarial relationship with the culture to some degree. 
And that I think what's happening is a deeper kind of revelation of the foundational differences in our worldview assumptions where of Christ reigning versus the state reigning over us, which brings me to our fourth point tonight. And I'm sorry, this is a little long, uh, but there was just no way around it. Um, the fourth point is that Christians are in an adversarial relationship with tyranny. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to start reading in verse one here of Acts 17. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, he went into the synagogue for three Sabbath days and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This is the Jesus, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. And some of the Jews were persuaded as well as some other people. But the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials. So what's happening here? We've got all these spheres kind of crashing into each other. We've got the church, we've got the Jews, and we've got the city officials, okay? And they dragged them to these Christians, to the city officials. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into their house. Now, notice the description here. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others postpone and let them go. So do you notice how in, in these early Christians, in, in verse seven, 6 and 7, they've caused trouble all over the world. Now they've come here. This Christian, Jason's, welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees. There's another king, one called Jesus. From the very beginning, this is what I want you to know. Christianity has been seen as a religious commitment that subverts dictators and ungodly governments. Why? Because God demands the allegiance of his people. Christianity is not simply about accepting Jesus in your heart and going on with your life. It is about changing your allegiance from yourself and from the government to Jesus alone. We read in Romans chapter 10, it says these words starting in verse 9. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To declare that Jesus is Lord is not merely to just say some words from your lips and you're saved. It's not a magical incantation. This is a statement of revolutionary importance. This is a statement about pledging allegiance to Jesus as King. This single phrase, Jesus is Lord, would have been understood as, as defying the Jews' view of Jesus as a mere human and also defying the Roman government's claim that Caesar is Lord. Rome's Caesars claimed the title of Kurios, which means Lord in English. Rome demanded that its citizens in its empire show their allegiance and formally declare Caesar as Kurios. Caesar is Lord. This coin has this inscription on it. It would have been used by people every day. Just by using the money, the early Christians were confronted daily with a statement on their money that defied their worldview at a foundational level. But in God's economy, from God's perspective, there can only be one Lord. And that is to say that Jesus is King and Lord. It, it, to say Jesus is Lord is to draw a line in the sand. When, when St. Paul said Jesus was the true Kurios, he's the true Lord, the Lord of all, it put Christians on a collision path 
with the Roman military and government. Jesus's lordship over our lives ought to shape us. It ought to shape our families. It ought to shape our churches. It ought to shape how much we obey the government. This is really the heart of the problem. Christians were persecuted um, after the initial persecutions by the Jews. They, they started to be persecuted by the Roman government because of the, the claim of allegiance. They wouldn't declare Caesar as curios. God reigned, not Caesar. He was not the king of their life. And so when we talk about Romans 13, we have to keep that in perspective and to understand the God-given sphere of the government. And when the government steps out of that sphere, we as Christians have the moral obligation to defy the government. So let's go back to our original question. What is God's design for the government? Well, the one thing we need to know is that authority is inescapable. The only question is whether humans, human authorities will submit themselves to God because God is the origin of all lawful authority. And therefore, if you know that God is the authority, then we, we limit how we rule as, as his delegated authority. This is why fathers shouldn't be dictators in their home because they know there's an authority greater that's over them. Okay. The same with elders in the church. The same with if, if you're elected to an office, you know that there's an authority greater than you and you will give an account for how you ruled in that authority. So you should rule according to God's prescribed parameters. We don't make it up as we go along blindly grasping and demanding authority and oppressing others to get it. That is not how God set things up. We also learn that power is not evil. Just as authority is not evil, power is not evil. It is part of the created order. Power must be used for good when it ministers according to God's creation design. We also learn that the foundation for all right government and true liberty in this fallen world, the foundation of it is self-government. And this is made exponentially more possible through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. While God um, has certainly transformed societies, whether from the bottom of society to the top, which is kind of how it happened in the early church, or the top all the way down, he, he works primarily and firstly from the inside out. He changes hearts first, and then as we submit ourselves in obedience, as we rule our families, as we walk in authority and power, our churches, and then that comes out to the broader society. Families were designed by God to care for one another, the education, the welfare, and the health of the family members. Churches were designed to proclaim the gospel, administer the sacraments, and discipline their members. Nations were designed to adjudicate disputes, prosecute crimes, carry out just penalties, protect the innocent, and ensure equal weights and measures. These powers um, respect that sphere of authority. Each sphere, when it operates according to what it was designed by God to do, the people of that land will have the freedom to serve God and live in the abundance of his common grace and his saving grace. So whether you are a boss, a father, a mother, an elder in your local church, a police officer, a judge, or the president of the United States, the source of your power and authority is delegated. You have an obligation before God to conduct yourself according to his standards of justice. And if you don't conduct yourself in that way, <clears throat> and you don't understand that you have derived authority from God, you are a poser like Pilate. You are acting as if you have legitimate authority, but you are really making up your own standards of justice as you go along. You are living according to what is right in your own eyes. And you are some form of a tyrant. Humans love to build our own kingdoms and act our own laws and do our own thing and operate outside of the authority of God. And God will tolerate such behavior for a while, but eventually he will bring judgment upon those people. So the real question is, is whose authority are you submitting to? 
I do want to thank you for watching tonight. I hope you found this teaching helpful. Uh, please be sure to make sure you're subscribed and you got notifications turned on. And please share this teaching with someone else. Um, Facebook just loves to shadow ban me. So the more you can help me spread the word, the more it helps me overcome uh, the artificial intelligence. And I want to uh, just wish you a happy and safe and fun new year. Lord willing, I'll see you next week or the week after with part three of this series, One Nation Under God. Good night and God bless. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.